Um, Chapter 6. What the people don't even know. I think, I think all we have left is Eric. I'm back in the barn-like office building with Ricardo Larios, the Southampton Town Code Enforcement Officer. There's been rumors swirling that I wanted to check with him. Rumors about Eric Yolate, the manager of the Bel Air. What, uh, like, like, what, what, what's your take on him? Well, Eric, in the beginning... Um, that's one of the town lawyers warning Ricardo not to say anything derogatory. No, no, no. I'm not. No. Um, in the beginning, Eric was uh, extra super helpful. He never argued with anything. He never like said, "Oh no, I can't do that." He was. He complied. He said, "I'll take care of it." But as time went on, I started finding out more and more things, which I kind of disregarded in a way because I didn't see him that way. Um, Up until now, Eric's side of the story has been that the town is trying to chase him out, that Ricardo is harassing him. Fix this, fix that. No matter how many times Eric fixed something, Ricardo still so, wanted but, more. But some in substance, he, he felt harassed, and um, especially towards the end. Um, Did he explain to you how many times I asked him to disconnect that that uh, that wire out of the water? Tell me the story. <laughs> I've seen this wire, too. It's actually an extension cord running across the Bel Air's parking lot towards the cove that connects to the Shinnecock Bay. I pretty much had the same reaction that Ricardo had. And then I see it like tied up on the dock and then it goes into the water and to this boat. And this boat was like with, you know, sinking into the water. And uh, I had asked him what it was. He said, oh, it's my boat, but it has a leak in it. I'm trying to keep it so it doesn't sink. So I said, all right, well, that's fine. But you can't What I'm trying to process is how Eric can afford a boat, but can't afford to move out of the Bel Air. Ricardo, he just cares about someone not getting electrocuted. So I said, I'm like, you know, you got to get it out of the man. It's, you know, it's a violation. You got to just remove it. So he said, oh, I'll take care of it. And then I went back the following week. It was still there. Kept being there, being there, I was told, I told him several times. And uh, like I said, that was towards where he kind of just gave up on the property in general. Like, you know, the garbage started piling up. Uh, he had tools all in the front. He had stuff thrown in the front part, his little, where he kept his chickens and roosters. Um, everything just started falling apart. He just didn't care. And they stopped answering. I would knock on the door. The Bel Air was getting rougher and rougher as people moved out. More mattresses were added to the junk pile. I suspect that Jag, the owner, stopped paying for the exterminator after the evictions were served. How much of this is Eric's responsibility? I don't really know. But next, Ricardo accuses Eric of stealing money meant to pay the electric bill. I remember, and that's why all the food went spoiled. And then when I got there Monday, um, the dumpsters were full of just brand new like food and I, I felt bad I did um, but uh, you know they said that they were paying him money and he was he was going door to door collecting money you know, 150 here 100 there uh, um, for fuel electric all this stuff and then nobody got anything in return so it kind of it upset me it upset me that someone would take advantage of people that are already in a desperate situation you know what Ricardo was saying is that Eric collected money for utilities, but then didn't pay the bills, leaving the tenants without hot showers and in danger of living in the dark. 
I find it disheartening. You know, that's that's sad to me. You know, you were this property manager. You knew these people. Your kids played with their kids. You know, and uh, and he was taking advantage. That 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 troubled me. I have to admit that I've had my doubts about Eric too. Him owning a boat is surprising. Jag, the owner, also accuses Eric of stealing money and that he didn't take care of the property. But the town has also said things that were wildly inaccurate. Honestly, it's hard to know whom to believe here. Welcome to Every Town. I'm Charles Lane. She was completely scared. I mean, this big guy, six point something feet tall, knocking your door and, and pushing you to open the door because he wants to. So that was, Eric was my third big mistake. That was a bigger mistake than everybody else. This concerned citizens from Hampton Bay, they are people who really don't like the brown people. The place was an eyesore. Should be demolished. I hope it is. The, the plan from the town is working really great. You know, like trying to chase the people. You know, if you came here... My code enforcement people telling me it was a fire trap, that it was dangerous, that it was unfit for human habitation. Check, check, sound check. Court, the 23rd of August. The last time the Bel Air tenants came to housing court in Southampton, it was anticlimactic. The court date was changed, but no one bothered to tell the residents, so everyone lost a day's pay for nothing, plus babysitter money. Today is different. The lawyer for the Bel Air is waiting in the court parking lot. He's buckling his cargo pants. How are you? Good. Your name Mark? Yes. My name's... I'm going to let you finish no, no, there. Just... <laughs> his name is Mark Easton. His cargo pants have a hole in the backside and a black ink stain. After he finishes, I start chatting him up. But I mean, the reality yeah. of the situation here is, I mean, and I don't want to be recorded, so I hope you're not recording. I usually record everything for liability. Yeah, well, then I'm not going to. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, but I mean, the, the place has been sold to the town. I mean, we're not looking to harm it. People have to pay rent. As we talk, the parking lot starts to come alive with people arriving. He's in the same park. <laughs> First comes Jag Jaywissal, the Bellows owner. Mark takes him aside to talk strategy. Bien, hey too. Then Carmen shows up. Waiting, <laughs> waiting, waiting. Have you thought about what you're going to tell the judge at all? I don't know what happened. I don't know if they want to call each or they want to call all or what. What they I don't know. <laughs> The last time Carmen was here, she worried whether getting evicted meant she couldn't enroll her kids in school. Her hope today is that she can get more time until she can find a landlord willing to allow children. Are you nervous? <laughs> yeah, I'm nervous in court. <laughs> I asked Carmen about hiring a lawyer. She says that she needs to save money in order to move out. Jose joins us. How are you? Good, good, good. Good, good. Where you been today? Jose drives a cement truck for a company that builds really fancy swimming pools. He's struggling to find an affordable place to live. I'm thinking about me because I'm thinking I need to go after today to the court, go to living in, under the bridge maybe. 
Yeah, what you think? Over there in the, <laughs> in the south side, there is big bridge. Maybe over there in the Baru can live. You're joking. Yeah, yeah, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Jose jokes around a lot, but honestly, it took me a minute because I know Jose is worried. On top of the evictions, Jag is also suing for back rent. Like everyone else at the Bel Air, as soon as Jose got the eviction notice, he stopped paying rent and instead forfeited his three-month security deposit. I can't sleep in very well because I'm thinking about that. It's dangerous. <laughs> have you thought about what you're going to tell the judge? Well, I don't have any idea because I go looking for or play, but they're charging too much money. I can't, I'm not making too much money for paying a lot of money in the rent. So all depends what he says. Hey. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? The last to arrive is Eric. He's in his nice church clothes, but he looks storm-tossed, like he hasn't slept well. Have you ever thought about hiring a lawyer at all? No, not really, because that is a lot of, you know, very high cost for just pretty much nothing, because they're going to do whatever they want instead. The landlord? Yes, and the court too. Um... Have you thought about what you're going to tell the judge? No, no, I actually have no pretty much idea. The only thing I can say is um, <clears throat> I've been trying to find another place since day one. Then Eric tells me what Ricardo told me about collecting money to keep the electricity on. No, now we have to take care of every single thing that happens in the building. And it's supposed to be uh, coasted by the, uh, by the owner of the property, not for us. But... Eric explained something that Ricardo didn't. That the owner, Jag, he's supposed to pay for the utilities. So I think he's playing that card under his hand because um, he's, he knows that if the electricity company comes in terms of the uh, electricity, we have pretty much to go. And I think that's it. <laughs> okay, I've got to go put my stuff away. Uh, I'll see you in there. All right, I stole my recording gear in the car and head in with just my notebook. The court building has the feel of a modular home. The floors sound hollow when you walk on them, and the ceilings are low. Past the metal detectors is a cramped seating area where everyone waits for the courtroom doors to open. I see Jag pull Eric aside. He whispers in his ear, Eric's face sets like stone. I want to ask Eric what Jag said, but the courtroom doors open before I have a chance. Inside, the tenants bunch nervously by the door. There's plenty of open seats, but they seem afraid to enter. When the Bel Air evictions are called, Maria's first. Mark, Jag's lawyer, asks to approach the bench. Maria stands back by herself, lawyerless, while Mark whispers to the judge. I can hear what Mark says, though. He explains that the town is buying the property, that everyone has to go as a condition of the sale. According to the contract, Mark just needs a warrant of eviction from the judge, a piece of paper that says the sheriff can come and remove everything from the unit. This is Mark's main objective— this piece of paper for each of the tenants. 
Through a translator, the judge asked Maria, when can you be out? Maria says that she found a place, but the apartment isn't available until October, five weeks from now. Mark looks to Jag. Jag nods. Mark speaks up. That's fine, Your Honor. The judge grants a warrant to evict. One down. Carmen is called. She stands behind the bar, afraid to pass through. Mark waves her forward. The judge looks up from his papers. When can you move out? I haven't been able to find a place, she says. No one will let with my kids. The judge wants a firm date. She shakes her head. She doesn't know. I have trouble even imagining the pressure that she must feel right now. The judge changes his tone. He's more gentle. He tries coaxing her into going to trial in two weeks. Maybe by then she'll find someplace. Okay, she chimes. The judge takes his time here. He really suggests that she get a lawyer. But I have no money. There are free legal services. Carmen nods her head. She can go. She turns, and I finally see her face. She's barely holding it together. She leaves the courtroom. I go out into the hall to check on her. She has her hand cupped over her mouth. She's crying. She waves me away. She doesn't want to talk. So I go back into the courtroom. After Carmen, everything becomes systematic. There's a procession of tenants. All of their situations. I can't work. I just had surgery. Landlords don't want my dog. I can't afford anything close to my job. All of the complexities of life. They get dropped into one of two buckets. Move out by October or go to trial. Most choose trial. Everything is civil and orderly and factory-like. And then Eric steps up and he derails everything. Hi there, this is Rima Dael, WSHU Station Manager, interrupting your listening just for a moment for two things. One, to say thank you. Thank you so very much for listening to this podcast. And please share this broadly with your friends, neighbors, and colleagues. The second reason why I'm interrupting your listening is to ask if you would make a gift to support stories like this at WSHU.org. Thanks again for listening and enjoy the rest of this episode. All the time. Everything is included in our rent. Everything is included in our rent. This is the first thing I record after court. And then he say, if you if you don't pay the electricity, it's going to be cut off. So I had to rush to my car to get my mic. So we've been getting money from every one of these people in here. Inside court, everything seemed normal. Eric gets up and tells the judge that he has four kids and hasn't been able to find a place to rent. The judge gives him the September trial date. 
Satisfied, Mark turns around and starts packing his papers. Then Eric asks to say something more to the judge. He asks, who is supposed to pay the utility bills? Mark stands up straight and spins around. From the side, he looks furious. I look across to Jag, and he's scowling at Eric. And uh, that's why I, uh, I told that to the judge, what, what is supposed to happen? Because we are being screwed both, both ways. The judge tells Eric whatever the lease says, that's who should be paying the bills. Then Eric gives the judge the same speech he's given to me countless times, that the people of the Bel Air are being chased by the town, chased by the owner. Eric says all of this calmly, more calmly than he's ever talked to me about it. The judge responds, the owner should be paying the bills. Mark tells the judge that he will speak with his client about the utility bills. He's mad, though. He hisses at Eric as he leaves the courtroom. After that, when I come out, the guy comes and says whatever word he was saying to me. It's not good. He was saying bullshit or something like that. I mean, I'm not supposed to hear that. Everyone is pissed. Pissed at Jag because without electricity, they can't stay at the Bel Air anymore. Jag and Mark are pissed at the tenants because they stopped paying rent. I ask Eric what Jag said before court that set his face to stone. Well, the first thing he said that uh, the bill is due today. They can't pay this bill on their own and move out. Carmen and Jose are talking off to the side. Today, in a couple of days, the electric is gone. Jose is talking too fast for me to understand. Something else. Ricardo Larios, he's looking for Eric. Carmen is crumbling. How do you feel? Bad. Because I have court in September 6th. And if I lose, I have to go out anywhere. So they don't care if I think you should get a lawyer. Like or Yeah, but the problem is I talking with one girl and the problem is I don't have paper. So she say the thing is it's more difficult without papers. So only in hindsight do I understand how dumb my suggestion actually is that Carmen should get a lawyer and take on this tidal wave pushing her from her home. Carmen ignored me, and she returned back to the crisis at hand that Ricardo was looking for Eric. Eric, que yo me acerqué ahorita a Larios, ¿verdad? Entonces, porque Larios se quedó así como... From the middle of all of this chaos, I see Jag and Mark leaving. I try to catch up. Jack? Jack? Please, nobody wants to talk. Okay? Um, lots of people actually want to talk to me. <laughs> Did everything go to... It will work out. Don't worry about it. I know it will. It's just a matter of time, you know. These people are poor people. They don't want to spend $1,500 a month, right? Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, they're mean to me. I mean, they could have paid me rent every month. The place would have been fine. We will not have all these problems right now. So they didn't want to pay. Now everybody has to suffer including me. (laughs) All right, talk to you later. Bye-bye. I'm still piecing things together, but it's all happening so fast. 
The electricity is about to be shut off. Jag is supposed to pay for it, but everyone stopped paying rent. Ricardo is looking for Eric. Then there's a commotion from across the parking lot. I look up. It's Ricardo at the front door of the courthouse. So everybody's paying you for the electric? Um, right now, I've been asking money from them like... Uh... Ricardo is standing on the top of the courthouse steps, looking down at Eric. He's pissed at Eric for scamming the tenants. But the problem is, is that you're asking for money, but it's not getting paid. No, today, uh, she's giving me, uh, Susan gave me some money. Well, and you then realize that every the people that, that live there have been telling me that they've been giving you money for a long time now. Oh, really? And there's no money going Hold from on. you, your pocket, to somebody else's. No. No, but, okay. no. but you're blaming the owner. And when the owner, when the power gets shut off, uh-huh. they've been giving you money. When? They've been paying you. When? Susan tries to correct Ricardo. You're Susan? Yes. Okay. Do you realize that you're one of the units that have not answered the door or corrected any issues in the, in the property as well? Well, I'm sorry, I work 12 to 14 hours a day on this. Okay, and, and the re- unregistered vehicle in front is your car, right? With the license plate? It was my okay. car. Okay, all right. Which that's all being taken care of. You still living there? Yes. And you have no ID, correct? No, not right now. Okay, so I'll come back and see you. Okay. I'll be back to see everybody after. Ricardo points his clipboard down at the tenants and then turns his back to go inside. Eric goes to his car to show everyone the receipt on his phone. Actually, I got it here. Look, PSEAG Long Island. I did, I did this payment, $829 with $95 cents, I mean, on 614. That is the only date we got money. And then the last week that I was asking money for oil mm-hmm. and for the electricity. So Eric isn't stealing. He's been paying the bills all along. Again, the town's version of events is incorrect. That, that, is, that is the only case. I don't know why they come saying all this shit. I mean, I'm going to take a picture of this. God, this sucks. A few days later, I stop by the Bel Air to check on everyone. The extension cord that Ricardo mentioned, it's still there, running across the parking lot to the boat, but it's not touching the water. It's wrapped around one of the dock pilings. Eric tells me that the boat was his. He sold it a while ago, but the guy hasn't come to pick it up yet. The electricity is on, but the hot water hasn't returned. Everyone is raw about how things went down at court. I have to leave now, though. Eric, most of all. How was your day? He has an axe to grind. That wasn't fair, anything that they, they were putting over there. They, they just saying, well, you have to give me a date. How the hell are you going to get a freaking date if you don't even have the money or you don't, you don't even have the place? 
Eric then launches from his anger at court into a rant against the people that he says are trying to push out immigrants. Many people that hear stories like this, they're going to say, well, get the hell out of here, pretty much. That's what they're going to say, because they are supremacists too. They're going to say, get the hell out of here, go to, the, to your country. If they knew that it's many of us go to the freaking country, going be, gonna to be killed, they wouldn't even say that. Why don't, why don't, tell me the story about why you left Costa Rica. Well, I, I never wanted to come here. I mean, I used to work really good job over there. I was... Uh, Eric says he used to make good money driving for an oil company. And then I remember that once I was going someplace, going from Punta Arenas to San Jose, which is the capital. So you have to take like a shortcut over Alajuela, somewhere there. It was late. He was tired. So he pulled over for a nap. <clears throat> so I remember I was just sleeping there for a second. I was trying to rest a little bit. So all of a sudden I see a car pulling. And then uh, the car stopped. They didn't realize I was there. They opened the trunk. And then they pulled off from the trunk like a bulk. A what? A bulk. You know, like, like, like something... Um, wrapped with, with, with clothes or something like that. And, I, and then I saw the thing, and I was like, what the heck is going on? And then uh, one of the guys uh, all of a sudden realized that there was a car over there. It was my car. Got the bulk again, put it inside the trunk, and then closed it. I say, well, I don't know what's going on. They turned on the car, and then they came, they came and parked in front of my car. By that point, my heart was almost out of my chest. I mean, I was, it was beating like 15,000 revs by second. I was really scared because I knew that something really bad was going on, that they were trying to dispose from my body. <clears throat> so the guys uh, told me, you have to get down from the car. Then I came out from the car. Anyway, I was dead already. So one of the guys, the, uh, the Costa Rican guy, say, you have to, to get on your knees facing the car and put your hands up against the car in this way. He put a gun in my head. And then the guy say, should I kill him right now? I mean, I was crying. And I say, I don't know anything. I won't say anything. But he he already has checked my my uh, ids and everything on my wallet so he said i know eric that you live in this place in san ramon and then um i'm gonna let you go i'm gonna be contacting you every time again they 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 kicked me in the back so i failed again and he say don't move until you hear the car has gone So I remember I received this call, and then the, uh, it was this guy, the Costa Rican guy that already I already saw. And then he said, um, I got your phone number, and I know who's your mom. He's, yeah, he said my mom's name, my father's name, and my sister's name. He said, whatever you think to do, if you want to go to the police right now, I'm going to be in San Ramon, in this address. And I'm going to kill your parents. You will see. We're not afraid. We're not playing. 
So I was scared again. So I kept receiving these calls pretty much every day for the following month. Every single day I was receiving, I was receiving calls from this person. I spoke with my wife and I say, maybe we should go to the United States. I never wanted to explain. She said, well, maybe you can go and then I can go later. So I remember we got to Sonora in Mexico. We got to somewhere in Chihuahua. We walked for like 24 hours. Everything start, started getting, you know, getting really, really bad. Uh, two of the guys couldn't even walk anymore. So they were left behind. I, I was trying to find any nest from any bird or something to drink the eggs or so, anything like that. When you know that you are dying, you're gonna do anything. The only thing I was, I was thinking after that is just to drink my own piss. But I can't because I don't even have a drop of water in my body, so I can't even do that. Far in the distance, in the horizon, I could see many, many lights. I say, wow, <laughs> I'm just so stupid because you're coming from a small country and you think everything is the same. And then um, I say, maybe that's New York City because it's really shiny or Las Vegas or something like that. No, it was um, what is uh, Tucson in Arizona. The guys uh, opened one of those uh, Coca-Cola 12 packs or whatever. The, I, I think it's 12. And then we felt like it was the glory. I mean, never before in my life I tasted a Coca-Cola better than that day. I'm sorry for the brand, but <laughs> I remember we were driving, I think it's the uh, interstate 40 or something like that I was watching I can re I remember it. we were in Amarillo Texas somewhere Oklahoma City we got into a hotel inside we got to Georgia and then uh, I remember they uh, somebody was you know like uh, like poking me and then uh, I woke up and then I saw my sister-in-law she cried and cried oh you're alive you're so alive I was thinking it was a lie, but you're alive. And she, and she hugged me, and she said, "Come on, come on, let's let's get let's get out of here." And I, and I feel like, what are you doing here? And she say, "Well, we are picking you up." I say, "Where I am?" She say, "You are you are in Florida already." It was really hot. It was really nice. First thing she said after I took the showers, "Come on, uh, you need to speak with your wife." I called my wife, and and she couldn't even believe that I was there. And then, uh, because my wife was living with my mom, she said, I'm going to put your mom. Again, my mom was crying and, and, and all, all, the, all the story, right? Because they already knew, where were you? Mike Dunn and CCHB and the school district and the town's failed promises landlords not renting to families, the code violations, Ricardo complaining about the wire across the parking lot, the garbage piling up. All of this comes after the main saga of Eric's life. Okay, but so you don't, you're not, you don't have papers. Well, <clears throat> I do have papers now. I do have um, some friend of mine. He was telling me, Eric, you should do something. Your situation is not 
not like a regular situation that you just come here and that you were just trying to flee from from the uh, danger that you were living in. And I say, Dan, I don't want to go and do anything because I'm gonna be thrown out of the country. I came, I didn't came legally. I was trying to do it legally, but they didn't appro approve me. So I, that's why I didn't. He said, you should do it, you should do it, you should do it. So we did. We, uh, we hired this person over the phone. I never met this girl. She filled out, uh, filled out all the papers she filled and she sent to USCIS. So, well, thanks God. Uh, right now we have the papers, everything is fine. For me, my wife, and my, my, my oldest son, Eric, the other kids were born in here. But you see, that is what the people don't, don't even know. They just come and point you saying that you are illegal, that you are Spanish, that you are Chinese, that you are Indian, that you are whatever the hell they want to say. But they never take the time, like you're taking tonight with me, few hours and say, okay, what's your story? What happened to you? What, what, what is the situation? They just say, no, you should just go back to your fucking country. I'm sorry, to your freaking country and, uh, and stay there. I never shared this story. I just shared this with immigration and I shared this story with my wife once. Um, that's it. And you and whoever he hears all this, but, um, yeah, it's not just a, a story. It's part of the life. You know, like, like that is the way how we live. Yeah. On the next and final chapter of Everytown, I want to tell you what else happened to the Bel Air. It's a very talented group of people. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We need talent for what we're doing, believe me. Uh, we're here to discuss the tremendous threat of MS-13, one of the most violent and vicious gangs anywhere in the world. We've really never seen anything quite like this. The level of ferocity, the level of violence, and the reforms we need from Congress to defeat it. I'm honored to be joined by DHS Secretary. This story was produced by Max Wasserman and edited by Ann Lopez. James Bowen fact-checked. It was reported by myself, Charles Lane. Also, there are way too many musicians to give proper thanks to here. So please visit our webpage, where you can find a list and links to more of their work. All of it has been handpicked because it's really good, and we encourage you to listen to more of them. Again, you can find the links on our webpage, everytownpodcast.org.